0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, folks. Our guest today is New Testament scholar Daniel Kirk, who, by the way... I've known him for a long time. He was a student of mine in seminary. I don't know how many years uh, ago. He was but just a little baby. He was like four or something. <laughs> I think I was 12. So, And <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun playing kickball outside during recess. But uh, yeah, I, Daniel was a student uh, at Westminster Seminary where I was teaching for a number of years. And uh, one of the best students I ever had and despite my influence, has gone on to a career to be a really good New Testament scholar and his interest in things like Paul and Romans and, uh, you know, most recently a a strong interest in the human Jesus, which is a big topic.
1: Yeah, and that's primarily what we'll be talking with him about. And he has has a really interesting perspective on how the church and and how uh, other Christians have maybe lost sight of the fact that Jesus is human.
0: He better be. And what does the Bible say about that? Right, and why is that important? Right,
1: exactly.
0: All right,
2: well, let's get right into this, shall we? God has so bound God's identity with this people that what happens to them on earth is a reflection of either a correct or a bad reflection of God in heaven. God is more in this with us, and we have more of a responsibility to be the kind of people that show the world the kind of God that we think the true God actually is. Well, it's
1: that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good.
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com promo code normal people. That's one word it's available nationwide. That's microdose.com promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping microdose.com promo code normal people.
2: All right. We have with us today, Daniel Kirk. The one and and only. Hey Daniel. Well, I would say the one and only, but really um, there's also the guy who writes fiction books. Uh, and uh, really? he probably makes a living on his writing, so yeah, not, not the one and only. I did not
0: know that. Okay.
2: Yeah, library mouse, man.
0: Well, you're the only Daniel Kirk though, who's a New Testament scholar that I yeah, know. Yeah,
2: there we go. There
0: we Author go. Author and speaker, and you are now the pastoral director for the Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco. Can you explain very briefly what that is? Uh, the the Newbegin House. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The, the Newbegin House is a uh, a center for. Um, uh, I would say uh, theological education for the sake of the city, Uh, and I'm working with the Fellows Program, which is a nine-month intensive where folks uh, engage in um, spirituality and theology and social justice sorts of Mm. issues. They read a whole bunch of books and um, they give, they're working full time, but they are devoted to this thing for nine months. Uh, and yeah, it's a really great thing. It's I'm the pastoral director, which means that after Pete comes into town, I have to get coffee with everybody to tell them i still okay to believe in Jesus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's a good thing, right?
2: It is. It okay. is a good thing. It's, it's good for business. Come back. I, I just had a, a lunch and coffee all week long. It's, it's great, man. So I'm
0: keeping you in, in, in work. That's yeah, good.
2: Exactly. Well. Exactly. I love
0: you. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, you know, I mean, and all kidding aside, I think having people like you with PhDs working with churches, I mean, that's, I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and people benefit from that. So more of that sort of thing needs to happen. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I, I hear you. It was always my dream, actually. I, I went to do my PhD because I wanted to be a pastor to nerdy, overeducated white people. And so i that for a away.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that, 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 there are better ways of spending your life, I guess, than doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. We both know. Um, well, yeah, listen, Daniel, uh, there's so much we want to talk with you about. And the, the first thing, I would love for you to talk about your blog, Pathos, because the title is just amazing Story Theology. Telling the story of the story-bound God. What does that mean to for God to be story-bound?
2: God can't be bound by anything. Uh, well, but God has chosen to be bound. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the way it is. Um, yeah, you know, I, I came up with that. Uh, gosh, it was, it was quite a while ago when I started um, when I came up with that phrase. And you know, I, I was trying to develop both the idea that. You know, the, the Bible is this big story, um, a story with some dead ends, a story in which you know, our perspective definitely changes as we go through and cross multiple authors. Uh, but also the fact that um, the, there's a God who's at work in this particular story, uh, I believe that that fundamentally impacts the identity of God. Uh, that you know, when you're when you're digging into scripture and you see the sorts of ways that God is talked about, uh, like at the Exodus. God identifies as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? Who do you know who the who God is? Uh, it's not by describing, um, you know, the unmoved mover. It's not even by describing, you know, the Trinity as God was and God's self from all eternity. It's the God who's been at work among these people at these times and making promises to be a certain kind of God and to do certain sorts of things. So uh, I, I do think that uh, my understanding, of how the Bible works and how God works in the story actually has some pretty profound implications for how we think about the identity of God uh, and uh, I think these things actually uh, even before I realized it started forming the, the backdrop for uh, how I think the Gospels are talking about Jesus that I know we're gonna we're gonna get to in, in some serious depth so uh, yeah, no,
0: Daniel would you say that um... Your way of looking at this, which I love, story theology and and God is bound by the story by God's own design and desire and will and love and mercy. Uh, Probably most Christians we know don't
2: read the Bible that way, do they? You know, I I don't think so. I, I, I think that folks tend to read the Bible as... Uh, sort of a a disconnecting God choosing to connect at Mm. different points. Uh, But uh, I think that folks tend to see God as having a lot more freedom than God seems to have in Scripture. And and more than that, I think people see God as above the fray. Uh, But I think one of the great things about Scripture is that God isn't above the fray. Uh, And you you read, Uh, Ezekiel, for instance, and it's talking about the the return from exile. And God's basically like, okay, look, I'm going to bring you back, but basically because everybody thinks that I suck as a God because of what happened to you. So bound God's identity with this people that what happens to them on earth is a reflection of either a correct or a bad reflection of God in heaven. And um, yeah, I want to, I want to grab hold of that connection to realize both that God is more in this with us and that we have more of a responsibility to be the kind of people that show the, world the kind of God that we think the true God actually is
1: so so Daniel how do you help sort of uh, the everyday Bible reader navigate you know we have all these concepts in our head of God being omniscient and God being above the fray as you said what are some ways that you found it helpful as you teach this to everyday people to kind of grasp this storied concept and how to make it a little bit more real. Cause right now when you're talking, I hear the storied side and it's exciting, but I also have this noise and this baggage of the God above the fray still, and I'm having a hard time putting those pieces together. And and how do we, how do we
2: integrate those? Sure. I, well, I, I think that one thing that, you know, folks who are gonna be resistant to this often are also gonna be the same folks who are like, no, no, no. We need to believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, so, you know, I I always try to show how the Bible itself is creating this problem or creating this depiction of God. So, mm-hmm. you go to places where um, God wants to do something, and God changes God's mind, or somebody else changes God's mind, Right when God wants to destroy the Israelites and Moses stands in the way, or when God repents of uh, having chosen this people and, and delivered them from, from Egypt, and say, well, what if what this text is saying is actually an accurate representation of the dynamics of God at work with people? Um, yeah, that's that is a way in. Uh, I I go back to the Sermon on the Mount quite a bit, uh, for this this interconnection and um yeah, you know, the whole, you know, salt and light thing that we all like, Yeah, yeah, go out there and be salt and light. Well the, the light part when Jesus is talking about that, is that he says, Look, you guys need to let uh, your light so shine before people that they will see your good works. And glorify your Father who's in heaven. Right? The idea being that people who claim to be the children of God should be acting like God in the world in such a way that God's goodness is recognized in the things we do. All right? So there's a picture of God's name being so pinned to the people of God that what we do actually matters for how God is known or not known. On the earth, so I think that there's ways to to take it both from our own being bound to God uh, and to show that God is more in- entailed and, and more involved, maybe even in some uh, surprising ways in the, the twists and turns of Scripture um, because of how people act. I mean, and then I mean, you could always just go to uh, also the. Um, Deuteronomy, any, any place where the connection between the people 's faithfulness and god 's or faithlessness and god 's action is known uh, and somewhere in there it 's going to be God is actually responding to people, and god 's hope is also that God will be made known to the mm-hmm. to the nations through the things god 's own people is doing so mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of different ways that embracing this paradigm uh, actually lets us read the Bible as if it's accurately depicting who God is and how God's at work in the world in ways that we have sort of been theologically trained to deflect.
1: So in a lot of ways, it's, it's holding the, the mirror up and, and looking, reflecting at the Bible itself, reflecting on the Bible and seeing that this is actually, if we take the Bible seriously, if we, if we look at it and look at what it's actually saying, we'll see this story God. This isn't some concept that we've overlaid but maybe has gotten um, mixed in with some other concepts over the years. And you're kind of recovering that, no, this is what the text is actually saying about God.
2: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, And to, to say, you know, even look at how God is most often described. It's, you know, it's a God who wants to be known in this story, right? The God who calls into being the things that don't exist and, and, the, and raises the dead. You know, that's how Paul talks about God in Romans 4, right? It's saying, yeah, you know, the God who created and the God who raised Jesus are the same God. If you want to know the true God, you see the God who's at work in this particular story. So yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that um, there are better ways to think about who God is uh, maybe even just by starting to say, w- when we say God, we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. But to say who is God is a much better than question than to ask what is God. Because once you said what is God, you're you're automatically starting to deal with an abstraction that um, just isn't going to help you make sense of the God who's at work on the pages of this particular set of texts.
0: Yeah. So God is not. Up there and distant and far away, God is bound to a story, and which means bound to us. Yeah. And that's a much better way of thinking about God, isn't it, than these abstractions, these up there and distant God who makes cameo appearances.
2: It, it is. and And I think it's... It's, and it's good and bad for God, All right. I think that one right. of the things that the God out there does is it allows us to just say, oh, if something good happens, God blessed me. But if something bad happens, we, well, God is still in control, right? Uh, no, crap. Um, you know, half of the Old Testament is this is a disaster, and it's a disaster for God because God has done better, you know? <laughs> Only um, half? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm reading through with my son. We're only through uh, Job, most of the Psalms, and Second Samuel. So, you know, I, I, I've still got a lot to go, a lot of gaps to fill. You're there.
0: a bad father, Daniel.
2: You know, I am That's a bad I father. <laughs> I am a bad father. I, I think he lo- likes God a lot less than when we started. <laughs>
1: nice. Well, you know, the, the tie-in in this kind of abstract God and the God bound by us, you know, the concept that keeps coming or the person that keeps coming to mind is Jesus, as the one who um, probably maybe displays this again and again in in different ways. The story-bound God really has a lot of tie-in with the story of Jesus that we find in the Gospels and otherwise. So maybe to to turn the tables or to switch the topic a little bit, can you talk a little bit about um, your concept of Jesus in your new book, A Man Attested by God, and maybe how this idea of storied uh, theology ties into uh, the, the book that you wrote, and, and how did that concept play into some of the concepts you wrestle with in the book?
2: Yeah, uh, I think one of the most challenging things about writing this book, uh, I'm, so I'm, the thesis of the book is quite simple, uh, that in, early, in the Old Testament and early Judaism, there are just a a million examples of what I call idealized human figures, you people of the past, present, or imagined future who are represented as um, being, um, often representing God to the world or, or representing the world before God, but they're often represented in, in, with glorious strokes and being very godlike, uh, or the ones in whom God is being made known to the world. And so I'm suggesting that when we read the Synoptic Gospels, this is how Jesus is being depicted, that the Synoptic Gospels are not depicting Jesus as God incarnate, um, but they're depicting Jesus as uh, one of these people, the people in whom God is made known. Um, But one of the challenges uh, in the in in writing the book is that I realized that there are a million things that people say because they think Jesus is God that I think we should say, um, but we should say it about Jesus the man as much as we should say it about Jesus as divine. So, you know, folks will say things like God is a verb, God is a verb that acts like Jesus, or if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And I think all of those things are absolutely true. Uh, And uh, I think that what we're seeing in Jesus is the conjunction between uh, humanity on earth uh, bearing the image and likeness of God and God being at work through God's image bearers by the power of the spirit um, so that God's own likeness is perfectly embodied through um, one man's life on earth. Um now I, yeah, I don't want to overplay the genesis 1 thing but I think it's a really it's a helpful place because folks are so familiar with it right humanity in genesis 1 it, it it's spoken of as being created in God's image and in God's likeness. These are words that um, somebody in the ancient Near East might use to talk about an idol that's placed in a temple. It is a visible representation of the God, um, and it's an indication that this is the place where that God rules uh, and is at work. Um, but of course, in this Genesis and iconic, anti-iconic tradition, um, there aren't Statues that look like God. Instead, it's humanity. So people were created to um, be the ones at whom you could look if you wanted to look at something and get as good a picture of God as you could possibly get. And they're being created to um, to be the embodiments of God's power on Earth. And so you know, this is. Again, it's God being tied to a particular creature in this story, which is humanity. Uh, and saying You might that,
0: say bound, right?
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. The human bound God. <laughs> yeah. uh, where God said, the way I'm going to be made known on earth is by people by people looking like me by people acting like me and one way to read the story is it's a big long story of people screwing that up but god persisting in pursuing people to act like god on the earth to make god's name known mm-hmm. so jesus comes along as the person who finally actually does it right. um person who like the adam and eve in genesis one is or Humanity in Genesis 1 uh, is created as a, receives a spirit and is a child of God. And as son of God, he, um, he implements the reign of God, even as humanity was given um, power to rule over the world on God's behalf. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a place where we see what it looks like for God to be at work in the world. God is bound to the story of Israel. In that story, he's bound to the Davidic king. And here is the special human one, that God sets aside sort of one last chance for a human to get it right and for this story to be fixed from within um, because it's that story that God has been writing that, right. needs to be, uh, that needs to be wrapped up and brought to its rightful conclusion.
0: Yeah, and I guess if, if you too quickly just flippantly say Jesus is God – you're going to miss a lot of that theology that's in the Bible that wants to say something about humanity as well and God's connection with humanity, right?
2: Yeah, exactly so. I, you know, I'll often say that if, if the only way for this story to be fixed is for, a, is for God to come to this, into the story from without... Then humanity's or Satan's power to screw up the story is stronger than God's power to make it right, right? Mm-hmm. If God can never have a human who can come in and fill the role that humanity was meant to play from Genesis one or the Davidic kings or Israel, um, then. You know, our power to, to make God's story go wrong is, worse, is stronger than God's power to, to make it right. There's, there's a necessity from within the story itself that God be at work, not only immediately and directly, but through people to, to be special creatures and to, um, to bring this story of faithfulness and love between God and humanity and a, a, a flourishing world into existence.
0: Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just called them bushes, but we got them in last night.
0: And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point.
1: It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact (laughs) instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This
0: spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a
0: school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid.
1: You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much P and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu.
1: So that that seems like a, I mean, that's really interesting from thinking of the theology and how the books of the Bible are tying this all together and the, the way it's being presented. But Kind of on a practical level, what are some practical ways that you've seen like what do people miss out on if they jump over Jesus the human, the idealized uh, human figure, and rush right to Jesus is god and and we the second person of the Trinity, and this is how we have to think of it theologically. What are some practical things that you've noticed that maybe people miss out on uh, if they do, if they rush to that conclusion
2: sure um. Uh, I, there there's several things. One is I, I think folks just miss out on this, the contribution of the voices of the Synoptic Gospels. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke they tell a bit, they tell a different story of Jesus than John's story of God coming down. And uh, I think that's I think that is its own valuable thing. What if you read these stories and just put aside for a second the assumption that the right answer that Jesus is searching for is that he's divine? Um, what else might you find? That's one thing. Um, I think uh, in addition to that, um, for us as people, uh, when we chalk something up to Jesus being divine, it instantly becomes something that has no more, no bearing on me anymore, right? If Jesus can feed a bunch of people with almost nothing because he's God, then it's not incumbent upon me, right? It could never be incumbent upon me to try to feed a bunch of people with less than I, I think I could possibly give. But if Jesus does it because he's the man and he's recreating humanity, then Maybe our eyes will be tuned to the fact that, for instance, in Mark, Jesus doesn't actually feed the 5,000. He gives the bread to the disciples, and they're the ones who feed the 5,000. If Jesus can cast out demons not because he's God incarnate, but because he is restoring humanity to its place of rulers over even the spiritual realm, then maybe we realize that, oh, not just Jesus, but the disciples can cast out demons. And maybe that means that um, the authority that God wants humans to bear on earth is about more than just, you know, preaching, uh, you know, preaching from scripture or something like that. I think that there is a, maybe a direct implication for us as people uh, for the kind of authority and restoration and hope that God wants us to, to be bearers of that, um, that we completely miss if we chalk up all of this great stuff to, uh, to Jesus being God. And, and then go to the second half of the gospels, right? All the, the great power stuff is in the first half of Mark, for instance, um, but Jesus on the way to the cross. Um, you know, I, I, here we have the single most unrepeatable thing that Jesus does for us. But as soon as he said, I'm going to go to the cross, the next thing he does is turn around and say, okay, now take up your cross and follow me. Jesus being willing to give up his life and die is not because he was God and he knew that he would get, you know, that he would get resurrected at the end anyway. No, this is, this is the human um, being willing to place his entire life into the hands of God, hanging on the cross saying, God, you've abandoned me to death. And that's terrible. uh, And having to, to just be there in faith. Uh, And, you know, I, I think that, that the fact that Jesus is more like us and more with us in our suffering and the call to lay down our lives uh, is something that uh, is to be gained by, uh, by, by really um, zeroing in on the fact that this is a story about Jesus the man.
0: It seems there's a lot at stake, Daniel, of, um, of not doing what you're saying because we will miss maybe who jesus is <laughs> and, and miss what the biblical story is trying to get at by by saying too quickly that jesus is divine it's as if we're keeping jesus at a safe distance and putting him in that same platonic up there in a away world as we like to put god yeah it starts I, intruding into our lives a little bit too much
2: yeah i and you know i um, you know, to, to, your point, you know, I know it sounds really abstract to say, you know, you're missing the, st- you're missing the point of the story, but yeah, you know, I was having coffee with somebody, uh, about a week ago and she was like, you know, if, if Jesus isn't divine, then, you know, there's just no reason for, for me to follow him. You know, there's, there's Buddha, there's Moses, there's the other teachers. If he's not divine, there's, um, there's no reason for me to follow him. And, um, you know, ultimately as a as a big picture if that's going to be your conclusion fine but i want to say okay you know, actually the way she put it is why you know why should you why would i follow him and what i want to say is there's actually an answer to that question why would i follow him um, that once you realize that Matthew Mark and Luke aren't written to demonstrate or stake the claim that Jesus is god then I think that it just leaves us wondering, well, then what is he trying to say? What is he trying to do? And why is this a picture of somebody that I should listen to and follow? And I think that opens up um, a self-entailing vision of the kingdom of God uh, that has the power to, to blow our minds if we've really been um, running quickly to that Jesus is God thing.
1: Right. Okay, it feels like one of the practical the practical imports is the concept that came to mind was this idea uh, you know, in my tradition growing up that the life and death of Jesus is really a transactional event. And so the divinity was there to sort of the, the deposit in God's name. And there was really no attention to the imitation of Jesus or how to follow after Jesus. So it seems for, from a discipleship or um, what we do in churches every week That this kind of, uh, both the story theology and Jesus as the human and the synoptic gospel's presentation of that really gains some meat. It gains relevance again, rather than why is all this here? Why don't we just get to the point, which is the transaction at the end of this whole thing?
0: Like the ancient creeds do. Right. They sort of bypass. (laughs) And there are reasons for that. I'm not knocking the creeds, right? But isn't that true, Daniel, that the creeds deal with the birth of Jesus and then death and resurrection, the stuff in between is like, eh. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's
2: true. Right? So yeah. and,
0: and maybe, maybe this is helping us understand. Maybe we can't account for the Gospels very well, um, unless we really look at it from a different point of view, which is maybe they're not written to make a, let's say, systematic theological claim. Maybe it's a story that's being told that we can actually relate to. Mm. Isn't that the incarnation, right? That's the this mystery and um, impossible to figure out messiness of God with us and whatever that even means. You know. Hey, um, I have a question, Daniel. Okay. Are you ready? Because I know what people are going to say right now. They're going to say, "Okay, Synoptic Gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—great. How does the Jesus presented there? How does that have a conversation with?" let's say, John, like you mentioned, or maybe Paul, or maybe the book of Revelation, things like that. I mean, and I know you talk about that in your book, but maybe just help us understand a little bit, uh, d- does the one
2: cancel the other out? Okay, um, okay a couple things to say. I, I, at some, Since you mentioned the creeds a second ago, I also want to put into right now that arguing for the full humanity of Jesus is uh, a completely orthodox, um, Christian thing right. to do um, that when when people are hammering this out, the the official statement is something like human like us and always accept sin, um, and you know in in the illustrious words of E. P. Sanders, not like us and always except the ability to walk on water. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I, I do want to just uh, stake out that you know what I am arguing for is a portion of what we confess together that is often overlooked. Um, so uh, the first thing I want to say in, in direct answer to your question though, Pete, is uh, I, don't, I don't think necessarily that the Gospels were written to um, the Synoptic Gospels to argue against a divine Jesus. Um, It's interesting. I was on a panel with Larry Hurtado uh, about a a month ago, and he he thinks that the Synoptic Gospels were actually written to reground Jesus in history, um, maybe at a time when people's exalted pictures of Jesus were getting a little bit out of hand. Um, So... That, that's not necessarily my reconstruction of what's going on, but that's one way to, to think about your question, that there, they, there could be any number of reasons why um, even folks who, uh, who have a high, a high divine Christology or pre-existence Christology might want to tell stories like this. And so
0: even in the early church, Daniel, the very beginnings of the church, we can see them working out this Jesus person. And having and maybe you no know, disagreements or a back and forth or trying to clarify, they're not all saying the same thing. They're all trying to get at who Jesus is and maybe using different and necessary language to talk about that.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, people use musical uh, analogies all the time when we get this plurality in scripture. And, and I think that's in some ways helpful, right? I mean, you can you can have a, a melody carried by, um, you know, a, a soprano or by, by a tenor part or something, uh, and then like it doesn't, it, when you put that together with somebody who's singing a, a different part, it doesn't make the one bad, if it does its best, it should enrich it, but you, what would, what would make it bad would be if you made them all say the same thing, right? That would, that would, uh, that would take it, take away from it. Uh, so uh, I think that part of what I always want to do is to let each writer have their own voice. Uh, and, and I want to be able to say uh, there is diversity in the New Testament in terms of how people talk about Jesus, some of the things seem compatible. Some of them don't. Um, but let each one uh, listen to each story, and let each story have its voice. And uh, and I would say enter into this new millennia-old Christian practice of doing the hard work of trying to hold humanity and divinity together. Um, you know what, what Jared was saying a, a bit ago about you know, about. The, these gospels being about more than the crucifixion, right? Wrestle with the question, how does the how do the first 22 chapters of Matthew contribute to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he does, right? Let that be its own thing. Uh, and then after we've had a chance to, I think, to walk in this human Jesus thing for a while, then let's go back to John and see what... Um, You know, what does reading John now with this robust understanding of a human Jesus, what does it do for us? Um, Because in John, you know, Jesus is very human as well. Uh, And that might be important in some ways that we missed because we're super focused on Jesus as God being the right answer. Go to Paul. And yeah, there's some pre-existence there. But you know what else? Adam Christology is really important for Paul. The idea that we are in Christ and that we're sons of God and daughters of God, like Jesus was son of God, right? That that commonality is super important for Paul. New creation. So uh, I think that by focusing on the humanity of Jesus here, that when you start to spread across the New Testament, um, in addition to being enriched by the divine Christologies, you also find that the human Christology starts to take on a weight that maybe we hadn't recognized before.
1: So, so maybe break some of those, Kant, con- you kind of went on a nice riff there. Maybe break some of those ideas down a little bit. You know, you talked about pre-existence. You know, you you find some pre-existence talk in Paul, and and some Adam Christology. Can you just maybe talk about even those two things and how they you see those interacting in Paul? Like, why would you put pre-existence and Adam Christology next to each other? Are they the same thing? Are they how are they different in your understanding of of Paul?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I'll say that uh, for the letters that everybody agrees Paul wrote. Um, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, uh Philippians, Philemon, 1st Thessalonians. Um I don't see preexistence playing a, a very big role in Paul's argumentation in those letters. Um, uh I'm yeah, some days I think it's there, some days I don't.
1: Um and that just that, means can you just give your definition of what preexistence is, what that means?
2: Uh it, it means that Christ, um, divine being, uh, was in heaven before being Jesus the Messiah on earth. Um, so uh, the Uh, So, let me start with the Adam Christology thing. Um, There's a couple places where Paul talks about Adam directly in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, and it, it seems to me to be tied to his new creation theology. So, the idea is that God is recreating humanity through this representative human figure as part of God's larger cosmic plan to reconcile the whole world not just persons, um, to God. So in a similar way that you might read Genesis as a, uh, human rebellion and sort of dissolution of creation from its, um, you know, holistic and flourishing relationship with God and people, um, Jesus represents humanity being faithful before God and with faithful humanity, then the world starts to be restored, into a reconciled relationship with God. So that's the Adam Christology piece. Now, I I think that what happens in, um, and, and And with that, you get the Genesis language echoed of um, bearing the divine image, and we are renewed after the image of Jesus in Romans 8, for instance. So um, I think that Genesis em- image language, having uh, a, an image bearer of God and then other um, brothers and sisters who bear that image, all of that for me is Adam Christology, which is, and I, I think that is an idealized human Christology, um, like what I see in the Gospel in the Synoptic Gospels. Now, you get someplace like the Christ hymn in Philippians, um, is that one or two? I always forget. Um, yeah. Early Philippians, and excuse me, Colossians. Um, Philippians is definitely, yeah, Philippians 2. Um, but in, in Colossians, the language of image bearing and uh, and being child of God, it, it's taken from that the, the place of Christ's work in his death and resurrection, and it seems to be edged back toward um, a pre-existent cosmic Christ and a pre-existent image bearer of God, right? So that what it, what it, it looks like when you're reading the Bible from front to back is that Jesus bears the image of Adam. But when you get into this Colossians Christ hymn, you start to get the picture, oh no, Adam and humanity were actually created to be a reflection of the pre-existent Christ. So it's the pre-existent Christ that comes first and who gives humanity its calling and then who comes to earth to reclaim that calling for us. So uh, I think you see the two playing together in a really interesting and, and provocative way there in, in Colossians. Um, I think that there are, that you can have the you can have one without the other, um, but uh, I think that together, the pre-existence Christology speaks to Jesus being involved in first creation and humanity, you know, original humanity and its uh, likeness to God, whereas the, the Adam Christology um, speaks to Jesus' place in new creation and recreation and uh, the salvation and reconciliation of humanity in the world.
0: Hmm. And so we have, in a way, I guess what you're saying is we have different stories of Jesus in the New Testament, and respecting them and letting them be in some sort of dialogue is important. And I know you appreciate this, Daniel. That's That seems to be probably a different way of reading the Bible than most people are—well, I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of Christians, at least conservative Christians in America— uh, you expect all the writers of the Bible to be on exactly the same page. Right. And not have, let's just say it, different theologies, different ways of putting the pieces together. And the fun that we get to have that keeps us in business, right, is the the complexity of this material and and how they contribute to each other and how they're in dialogue.
2: Yeah, it, I I think you're exactly right. And, um, you know, it's, I also, I, I like to say at this point, when we have, when I have conversations like this, we're not trying to be garters of some sort of Gnostic secret. Um, the, the New Testament has three Jesus stories that are the first three books of the New Testament that say different things in the same places. And when you go to the third one, Luke, he explicitly says, people have written this stuff down before. I did research and now I'm going to tell the story like I think it needs to be told. So, and, and we have at least one of his sources in the book of Mark. Some people think we have two of the sources in Matthew and Mark. So, you yeah, know, the idea that you have different, you know, theological interests, all you need to do is the very hard work of sitting down and putting these guys next to each other and seeing what what's different about the stories they're telling. One of my favorite examples is the story of the, the wine and the wine skins. It, um, the Mark two version, it's a, in a series of conflict stories. The, the disciples of John, the, uh, of John the Baptist and the, the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus as disciples. And they're like, Hey, how come we're all fasting, but you guys aren't fasting. Jesus, is, I don't know. Jesus, uh, Jesus is like, okay, look, you know, um, as long as the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast. But the bridegroom will be taken away one day, and they'll fast on that day. Besides, you can't take an old um, an old patch and put it on, or or put a, a new patch on unshrunk garment, or on a new garment. And you can't take new wine and put it in old wineskins or else um, it'll blow up, and you know both things will be ruined. Okay, so you've got these stories in in Mark, and and the point is there's a couple of points. One, Jesus is here, so it's not the time to fast. It's the time to celebrate. Second point, there's something new going on here, and you can't just take this new Jesus story, this great new thing God is doing, and expect that the old containers can hold it, or these old wineskins can hold it. So, perfectly, you know, perfectly makes sense story. Luke ends that same controversy story by having Jesus say, "Oh, and by the way, nobody when they've had old wine wants new wine because the old wine is better." Right, do you see what just mm-hmm. happened there? A story whose whole point was Jesus is the new wine that you can't put into the old wine skins of traditional Jewish practice. And Luke ends it by saying, "Well, once you've had old wine, you don't want the new." <laughs> he ends up making The exact opposite point that Mark does from the same story. And the reason is because Luke has this deep theological agenda to demonstrate that Jesus is sort of the natural outflowing of the very old thing that God had been doing in and among the people of Israel. He has a way of telling his story as a story of continuity. And so he takes this deeply discontinuous story and has it end with a concluding word that uh, affirms his commitment to, to continuity. Um, and you can find things like that if you will know, we'll take. And the point isn't just that they're different, but that Luke had Mark and he changed the story on purpose. And he, t- he tells you he's going to do that in the first chapter. Um, so we're not just making this stuff up, um, but it, it does take. Uh, putting down a relaxing of our guard, uh, a relaxing of our presuppositions about unity and uniformity in the scripture um, to be able to hear different people uh, telling different stories. Ohio,
0: ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And that
1: that shift, uh, you know, just thinking, you saying that, I remember being in classes and courses (coughs) where those kind of things came up. And that shift made the Bible so much more interesting that now the task wasn't to make sure that it all said the same thing, but to be able to ask the question, why are they different? And I found that that question became such an opening for deeper engagement in the text that no longer was I uh, had this idea that it had to say the same things, but that there was a purpose to it. So, you know, a lot of times some of my more conservative friends would be, dismissive of the text because or dismissive of any idea that it wouldn't say the same thing and then my you know my atheist friends would want to dismiss the text because it said different things here you know we were learning something smack in the middle that it makes it way more interesting way more engaging and meaningful when we can just live in those differences
2: yeah I I completely agree um and uh you know I think it's Whenever folks are doing this, I mean, it's always people who really are committed to the Bible, right? Or at least committed to the idea of the Bible. Um, and, and I just encourage people to to think about that resistance as perhaps um, – is it maybe a signal that we're more committed to our idea of the Bible than committed than committed to the Bible we actually have? Right, let's sit down. Yeah. If it doesn't have to be this thing, um, yeah,
0: yeah. Isn't it interesting too, Daniel? Just as you're talking about Luke and all that, you know, Luke's sort of saying, "Yeah, I'm going to get this right." <laughs> let, mm-hmm. let me, let me. I'm, I've done my research. I've talked to some people. You know, I hit the libraries and I did the Google search, and here we are. But I just, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat, it's a little bit funny, isn't it? That Luke is, yeah, okay, Luke, we'll put you in the Bible. You're third. Uh, you don't have the last word. You're sort of, a, you're one voice among many. And what an interesting way of reading the gospel of Luke. We're, we're really getting his passionate take. It's different than the others. Is it better? I actually don't know many Christians who would actually take Luke's claim at face value saying, I'm getting this right because they know they have to work with Mark and Matthew on some of these things, right? It's just the Bible is just the way it's even brought together by those who were responsible for the canonization process as complex as it is. Uh, You know, we have this Bible that, that refuses to be read biblicistically Uh and literalistically. It has to be read theologically and sensitively and just being okay with
2: it. Yeah, you know, I, I, as I was working with the Nubian Fellows this year, um, when the, some of these tensions started coming up, one of the questions that was asked was, when do you start talking about some of these hard things with people, about, you know, what the Bible is? To which my immediate response was, at least in my head, I don't think I said it out loud, was, well, are you actually reading the Bible, or are you just talking about it? Because if you're actually reading the Bible, you cannot get very far before the Bible itself puts all of this in your lap, right? You can't, if you start at the beginning, by the time you get to Genesis 2, um, you've already run up against the fact that the Bible isn't that isn't written, if it's written for the purpose of giving you a unified, coherent account of everything that is, and the God who's above it all, making God self-known, then it's a failure by Genesis 2. wouldn't
1: wouldn't you say, though, you know, Daniel, that part of the challenge, that would be true, I think, for a lot of people, except that we all have, we've all been preconditioned, just like Luke and Mark, they have theological agendas, they have a theological lens, and, you know, one of the challenges, it, it seems to me, is there's a lot. When, I, when I'm engaged in a conversation with you about am I really reading the Bible, of course I think I'm really reading the Bible. So how do you get past that filter, you know, the, the understanding that, you know, like Luke, how do we get past our Luke mentality? Well, I'm going to get it right. <laughs> I'm going to read it, and that's what it is instead of being able to have a self-criticism or le- allowing the Bible to critique that lens you use to read the Bible. How do you, you know, it seems like this, this cycle, how would you say that you've been able to, to crack that code with people?
2: Um, I think there's different ways of different ways of going about it. Uh, I do think that Genesis one and two can be a, a helpful exercise um, just to have people, write down the order that things happen in Genesis one and the order that things happen in Genesis two, uh, in, in some ways it's mm. exactly opposite. Um, go to, you know, a uh, Pete often likes to put, uh, the, the proverb, you know, answer a fool according to his folly, um, or he'll be wise in his own eyes, right next to you know, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him, which I think i right write back to back to, yeah, to- yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, so, you know, little things that can create cracks in the understanding of uh, of what the Bible is in non-threatening ways. I, I also find that for some folks, um, using the synoptic problem of King's Chronicles um, as opposed to the synoptic Gospels is a little safer, right? It's it's one thing to talk about, you know, um, whether Asa's feet... You know, got better because he was a good guy, or you know, if he was a bad guy, and that's why he had stinky feet for forty years. Um, you know, that's a lot easier for folks to to deal with sometimes than oh yeah, Jesus didn't really do this thing, or this mm-hmm. this writer is just saying Jesus did that because it, it fits his theological agenda.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Daniel, we've known each other for a long time, and we've had this sort of conversation a lot, and and it really keeps coming down to those same questions, really what is the Bible? What are we expecting from it? And what does it mean to read it well? And, you know, maybe there are some reading approaches, reading strategies Mm. that have not been helpful for people. And Mm. so they read the Bible and it winds up not acting like what they expect it to be. And that's just a shame, isn't it?
2: (laughs) It is. You know, uh, uh, I think on the, on the positive angle, you know, I, I've been talking about getting people into problems. Um, another thing that I, I think is is important to folks is people do want to hear when you say these kinds of things about the Bible, they want to hear that you have an answer about what does it mean to say that the Bible is inspired. And people want to have an answer to how do you read the Bible now? Um, you know, those are a couple of things that folks have found yeah, those are the kinds of questions that keep coming back to me um, as as I've been exposing people to these things, and uh, I think I have maybe a better answer for how do I read the Bible now, and that is that it is a story of God reconciling the world to God's self in in Jesus, who is the Messiah, um, and you know that. That allows me to say that the the point of this story isn 't found in god 's ability to um, to slaughter all the people who live in a particular land um, it 's not found in Um, displacing the person who's in power um, so that the same power structure can be maintained with God's man in the chair. Um, But that it's a story that comes to its conclusion by um, the complete renunciation of power and God's faithfulness to those who um, are willing to give up their lives um, so that the people around them might live. Uh, You know, so I've, you know, finding a ways to talk about what the, the big story is about um, is has been really important uh, and uh, allowing whatever that definition is to be big enough for different explanations of um, uh, yeah different different ways of telling the Jesus story um, that, that you might find it in the New Testament. Um, yeah, I'm still working on the inspiration thing. I mean, uh, we have the Bible God wanted us to have, uh, goes will get you so far, um, but it's uh, uh, folks who do want a little bit more, and I sometimes want to give them a little bit more than that too.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah, but what? <laughs> right, I, I mean, so, Pete, what does it mean that the Bible's inspired? Right, well, the thing, you know, inspiration and revelation, those things are tied and I think the consciousness of maybe Western Christians to things like, they all agree. Right. Or it's historically accurate. It has to be because God would never confuse us or lie to us. And we really do need to think of, you know, tweet-sized definitions of things like inspiration and revelation to, to talk the language that people are used to, but to do it in such a way that actually... Um, shows due respect for the text you're actually talking about, which doesn't act the way I think classical ways of talking about inspiration. You know, God sort of speaks and Matthew says, what was that? Okay, I'll write this down sort of a view or God is guiding the writers exactly in what they have to say. I, you know, I don't know how to reconcile those ways of thinking by what we actually see.
1: Yeah, it seems like there should be some. Like Some more imagination. I feel like a lot of times I hear a lot about what inspiration isn't. I think we've gotten really articulate about what (laughs) inspiration is not. But having some imagination and coming up with better ways of talking about what it is, I think will really help Christians moving forward.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I have been doing, uh, you know, one of the, because one of the favorite places for people to go to talk about inspiration is in Second Timothy, you know, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training and righteousness. Um, one, one thing I found very helpful is uh, I go back to that passage and I say, back up. Um, what Paul? How this begins is by Paul saying, um, you, from, uh, he, he's, talking to, he's addressing Timothy and he says, uh, you know, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God. So, you know, I've been saying, yeah, it's not just inspired full stop, but it's inspired for the purpose of giving you the wisdom that leads to faith in Christ Jesus. So this the Christological hermeneutic is part of having an inspired Bible. Um, and, and that actually fits fairly well with um, what um, I think a lot of New Testament writers say when they're talking about the, the Old Testament, you know, the prophets um, anticipating Jesus, which is that what they anticipated was his, uh, his suffering and death. And, and resurrection, so um, yeah, finding ways to not just say it 's inspired full stop, but that it 's inspired as an anticipation of the the saving jesus story, uh, I think we need to we need to be able to tie those things more closely together
0: and that is a great thought, and you know what daniel let 's continue this another time we need to develop we need to think more about this and have some fun thinking about just the nature of the bible based on how it's actually acting right mm-hmm. so we, yeah. we, we'd love to have you back sometime so but for That's now it. i just want to thank you for coming on the podcast
2: and we've had a wonderful time <laughs> Yeah, thanks, everybody. The book is A Man Attested by God, the Human Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels. You can get it now on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. I,
0: I was, I was going to do that for you, Daniel. <laughs> oh, you just oh, ruined it. And to just remind remind everyone where you blog. Uh, I blog
2: at uh, storiedtheology.com. That'll take you there.
0: And that is part of the Pathios family Yes, indeed. Yeah, correct. Yes. Good. And also just while you have you here, Daniel, you've written a couple other books too. Uh, Jesus have I loved, but Paul, which is a great book folks about, you know, Jesus is great, but Paul had some good things to say too. And, 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 you know, don't, don't be too down on Paul cause he might say some things that you think aren't really very nice. Uh, Paul is worth taking seriously and also unlocking Romans, a very, um, modest title for a book, oh, Unlocking yeah. Romans.
2: I'm, I'm a humble guy, Pete.
0: You are, but it's, it's the centrality of the resurrection for how Paul even talks in Romans and how much this is about unifying the people of God under one Messiah, both yep. Jew and Gentile, and not a book about how to avoid hell. Right. Right. That's not what Romans is. It's 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 about community and not how you can escape the hot place. Right. So, yeah. Daniel, listen. uh, Thanks again. Great to have you aboard here. Thanks, guys. Great being with you. Thanks,
1: Daniel. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening to our conversation with Daniel Kirk on the Human Jesus. If you want to take it a little further. We would really recommend his book, A Man Attested by God, The Human Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels.
0: That book will make you think. Yeah. it's made it's, me think.
1: It's a good book. Um, you can also check him out online and mm-hmm. the various things that he's doing and writing. Right. He's got story a, a blog, Theology.
0: Pathios blog at Story Theology, telling the story of the storybound God.
1: Right. Um, and you can check us out online. I'm on Twitter at jbias.
0: And you can find me also on Twitter at Pete Ends and also on Facebook at Peter Ens. You can check out what I'm doing on my website, PeteEnns.com. You can check out my latest books, sign up for my newsletter, see my speaking schedule. And most important, we can continue on my blog the kinds of conversations that we just had here today. Okay.
1: Thanks again. We hope you'll join us next time.
2: Sick
0: of being upsold at gyms?
2: My God.